Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. The blood that's on the back of the seat of the chair comes down and actually drips onto the floor. Right, but it drips onto the back of the chair first. Mm -hmm. So I think that's multiple drops in the same location. I don't think the same drop hit the chair and then ran down and then skipped and hit the rim of the, the seat and then went down. I think that is one drop it hit the rim of the seat and then dropped onto the the side of the seat i think there's another drop that preceded it that hit the cushion and soaked into the cushion there there's at least two drops that dropped there Mm -hmm. so i think that means that for a period of time even a short period of time the source was sitting on that chair and it bled and dropped down yeah i agree with that so, well, I guess let me ask you what you think about this. Do you think it, it could be possible? So, say, during the struggle, and, and I know we're not going to be able to tell this for certain, but do you think this is possible or plausible with this chair? During the struggle, the chair gets knocked over onto its back. The violence happens in the closet. The killer comes out with blood all over them. And they come out to the chair. Maybe they take their gloves off or take a shirt, set the knife down that gets the blood, the transfer blood, on the chair. They're dripping blood onto it. Then they pick the chair back up, and they're still dripping as they're standing there cleaning themselves off with, with maybe towels or something. If you said that there was a pile of towels like that somewhere there, then, but just unless they had a rag that they were trying to clean up uh, blood, and they, they literally, it was soaked with blood, and they flung it back, and it hit this part of the chair, and some of it dripped down, and some of it fell onto the seat, and, and so on and so forth. Where's this bloody rag? Where's these bloody clothes? Last week, I ended my conversation with Jim Clementi discussing the blood spatter pattern on the dining room chair that was found in the master bedroom right outside the closet. As you heard, Jim was having a hard time making sense of the chair. The spatter pattern clearly indicates that that chair was moving during the commission of this crime. There are drip marks that indicate that at some point the chair was on its back and some transfer stains and gravity rundown that indicate that at some point it was sitting upright. Our discussion last week was concluded by me asking Jim if it makes sense to him that after the murder, the killer moved out of the closet near the chair while they were cleaning themselves up. As you heard Jim say, that process only made sense to him if there were bloody towels or a bloody shirt found somewhere on the crime scene. As you know, and Jim's about to find out, 
there was a shirt and two towels found in the bathtub with the knife. From here, our discussion is about to get really interesting as Jim works towards building a preliminary profile of the murderer of Jim Melgar. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Where's this bloody rag? Where's these bloody clothes? In the, remember I said in the bathtub that's in the in the master bathroom that the murder weapon or a large chef knife that was involved in the murder was found in that bathtub in the water. Also in that water are two towels and a woman's shirt. And were they soaked in blood? Yeah, well, I mean, they were soaked in water for 15 hours by the time the police pulled them out. So Right, but I thought they also said that they checked all the traps and there was no blood in the traps. Right. Well, not, not in the tub because the tub was still full of water. So they checked the traps in the shower, the sinks, the other shower. Was the water in the tub bloody? It was discolored from what we could see. Because you know, we know for a fact the knife that was in the blood, even when the knife came out after being soaked, for 15 hours, still had blood on in tissue on it when they pulled it back out. Well, that would indicate to me that it spent some time drying before it was put in there. Okay. That makes sense. All right. It's a, there's, a, there's a white shirt and what else? Towels? White shirt and two bath towels. But they had been in the tub, right? Jim and Sandy? Yes. Yeah, so Jim's towel that he wrapped around his waist is still laying next to his body. Okay. And then Sandy had dried off and went into her closet there. Let me look and see if her towel is laying right there. Because she had already changed when when all this happened. Right, but what I'm getting at is there's a reason for the tub to be have water in it, right? Right, yes. Yeah, so according to Sandy's story, her, what she told the police was they were in the tub. They'd been in there for a while. Like a couple hours they had had, they had had some drinks, they just, you know, she ate a strawberry and they, they made love in the bathtub and then the dogs were barking outside. So Jim got out of the tub to go let the dogs in. He would take the dogs from the backyard and then take them and lock them in their, in their office. She said she got out and went and she waited for a few minutes. Nothing happened. So she got out, went into the, her closet there and changed into uh, like a nighty. And then that's the last thing she remembers. Okay, so another thing I want you to ask your listeners, if you have any neurologists, whether climbing out of a hot tub could be a precursor to a seizure. Because that might, you know, sitting in a hot tub and having physical activity and all that in there, climbing out. You know, have you ever climbed out of a tub, like a hot tub, and gotten lightheaded because yeah. you're standing up? Well, that could be something that might induce it i don't know but that's something you should look at so we've had a lot of our listeners that are in the medical and neurology professions that have all way and some people that just suffer from these same medical issues as sandy 
all weigh in on this. And so a lot of things that can trigger a seizure, one obviously is stress. Just being in hot water for two hours can cause some dehydration and can cause seizures. The mix of alcohol mixed with medication. So there's there's a lot of factors there that that could trigger a seizure. Okay, well, that's what I thought, and I think that's important to know. Obviously, those are kinds of things that mean it's a, it may not be a direct corroboration of what she said, but it's not inconsistent with what she said. So it's important to know. Mm -hmm. So to me, if we can talk about kind of what you think behaviorally about the tub, and, and and I'll tell you what I thought about it, and this is, and I'm curious if that makes sense to you or if you've got a better thought. So I see the bloody knife in the water of the tub to me that that indicates that, that the killer for some reason believes that that's a way to I, it must be a forensic countermeasure this will wash off my dna this will wash off my prints so i think that they see the tub as a place to safely dispose of any evidence tying them to the crime scene there's also the two towels and the shirt so my thoughts were they kill them they get done they're standing there if we have multiple offenders there's, this person is standing outside the closet covered in blood. They say, hang on. They take, they throw them, they throw them a, a couple towels. They stand there on the chair, by the chair, by that stool. They're wiping the blood off of them. They take their shirt, their bloody white shirt off, and then they throw all of it into the bathtub. What I'm wondering is, where else could they have gone? I guess that's the most likely bathroom for them to go to. It's right there. And the tub was already full of water. Yeah, I mean, probably the stupidest thing for somebody to do if they were going to stage this is to leave the knife. Is the knife identified as coming from the house? No, it's as with a lot of this case, uh, the inference is made by the state that it did. And Sandy doesn't know. She doesn't think so. So these these aren't the type of people that have you know, a kitchen with all the, you know, this, here's my knife set and this and that. They've got a hodgepodge of knives. But there was one of the same brand found in the kitchen. Actually, even though the the prosecutor used it as an indicator of her guilt, of Sandy's guilt, to me, it cuts much more the other way. If you were going to do this and you were going to actually use a weapon from the house, then why wouldn't you actually get rid of it? Why wouldn't you discard it? Right. And I feel the same way with the, uh, you know, the backpack that you told me about in the garage. I mean, obviously, that's an indicator that would indicate that maybe the offenders never left the house. Did you get that photo I just sent you? Yes, I did. You know, it's 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 a white shirt and. I, I see, you know, sort of gray areas. I don't see bloody areas, but did they? Is the does the report say that that's blood on the bottom? The forensic testimony on that says that there's no blood noted. I think they did presumptive testing for blood, and they didn't find any. But I'm going to send you. I've got a photo of that shirt from the evidence room, and there's a couple things that are going to so you're going to see circles on it that was done by the crime scene investigator as areas to test for but there's there's two other things with this shirt that I think will jump out to you all right it's a it's got lace on the bottom of it this shirt yep so it's a woman's shirt exactly all right and she does not claim ownership of this shirt well again sandy doesn't say that's not her shirt she says she doesn't 
think that's her shirt. She doesn't recognize it. But with as with a lot of things, she says, I can't I can't be sure because her closet is a huge walk in closet with two layers of closet rods, you know, along three walls. So she's got tons of shirts. However, she wears a large and this shirt is a medium. All right. Well, let me just tell you something about the stains that are on this. Now, I'm assuming that these are the, these are not artifacts that were added. You know, the the yellowish red, orangish kind of circles and and shapes. The circles that were drawn on there, I believe the the circles were drawn on by the CSI to mark areas to test on the shirt. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. For me, what I notice is the the discoloration blotches all over the shirt. Yeah, but I mean, I'm a little bit confused because, for example, on the of the body of the shirt, all the way to the left, on the body of the shirt, if I zoom in really close, there's what looks like half of a heart drawn. Right. You're saying that that the CSI drew that on. Well, you know what? When I'm looking closer, no. Because the CSI, now that I'm thinking back to that testimony, the CSI, and I just got these photos today, but um, the CSI said he circled a couple places on the, the shirt to be tested. But as I'm zooming in on this, these marks are everywhere. Those aren't drawn on. Those are stains. Well, that's what it looks like to me. Although some of them are very unusual. I don't know. I'm really, I think we really need to find that out because, for example, the one that looks like relatively the size of a paperclip Mm -hmm. kind of in the middle yeah i mean it doesn't i don't know that doesn't look like a natural thing but some of these others i mean unless they drew on wet clothing and that's why the markings were look like this i don't know you you should definitely find that out because if these are just if these are actually blood stains that have been washed away basically by sitting them in water what that looks like to me is that they were put in the water shortly after they got on there. In other words, if only the perimeter is what stayed, then to me that means it's something that was washed off pretty quickly. But I don't know. It seems to me like it's just weird. You know, if you go straight down from the the one on the left the first one on the left that i talked to you about there, it looks like there's just one dot this yellowish orange dot there and then there's there's a couple of straight streaks there i mean those don't look like something that some csi should have done but then there's there's general yellowish areas around there you know right that don't don't have these you know rims i just i don't I don't know. I, I can't tell from this picture, you know, this is something that is very critical, actually, whether or not they're, these are all, you know, artifacts from the, from the CSI or whether they're actually from the crime scene. But like even down the sleeve, there's long yellowish areas, but then there's little tiny areas that do look like they're just stained, like that curved yellowish line on the left, on the right sleeve. And, and to me, just in general, the yellowish staining that's kind of blotched throughout of it or throughout the shirt. I wore a white shirt for work for three years when I was the fire chief and I got stuff, including blood on it. And uh, I had to throw several of them away because, you know, you get blood on your shirt and you soak it and then you wash it and it comes out and it looks like you got it clean. And then when it dries, it looks yellow like that. It's discolored. 
Right, I agree. But then I, I'm just not sure about all these yellowish, these more distinct yellow circles and shapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time I look at a couple of them, I go back to him saying he circled spots on the shirt, and that must be it. Then I look at another one and think, now that doesn't seem to be. So we'll have to we'll have to circle back to that and answer that question. All right. But so anyway, there's a size medium women's shirt that's obviously bloody in the tub with the knife. And they were not able to get any DNA off of the shirt. Nope, they didn't get DNA. Off the knife, they got a DNA profile. The blood on the knife was Jim's, and they've got a partial. On the handle, there was Jim's blood as the major, and there was a minor contributor, but there was insufficient to even tell what sex it was. Oh, really? With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And didn't we discuss whether or not there were other parts of the crime scene where the blood was not tested? Well, there was the safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the blood on the handle to the safe right. was not tested. Right. And you said that the testimony was that they didn't test it because it was going to come back to Sandy. Right. Who didn't have any cuts on her or any blood on her. To be fair, since I've I've gone over that one and I've looked at it, I I have to believe that had to have been a typo in the transcript. It, I only say that because of the defense attorney's reaction to it which is what his reaction to it was he's 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 appalled by it and he calls him out on it are you telling me that you didn't test that because you just assumed that it, but he says you just assumed that it must be the victims but in the transcript twice he says Sandra Melgar and not Jim Melgar so i only have what the transcript says but based on the defense attorney's reaction to it i have to believe cuz that is so absurd that he had to it's still not excusable, but I have to believe that he, he must have said Jim and it was a transcription error. All right. Well, I can't believe they didn't do that. I mean, obviously, that was an important piece of evidence because given the violent nature of this attack, given the weapon used, we always look for indications that the offender also got injured. Mm-hmm. And that's why you would look to see if Sandy had cuts on her hands or anywhere else on her body. You'd look for that because you're trying to determine whether or not she was involved in this fight. Right. And the safe makes it because given the proximity of where Jim was attacked and where he he died, it's clear from the blood spatter that at least the bulk of the attack happened right there in the closet. At least in my opinion, most of the fight happened right there. And so 
I don't see anybody going for the safe until after that attack is over to try to get into it. So if they had cut their hands and it very well, you know, during the fight and they go to the safe afterward, they very well could be the killer's blood and they never swabbed it. Right. So the family asked investigators to come out and photograph this and they came months later and they came out and took a photo because the family thought they saw a fingerprint in the blood. And so they took the picture and that was it. But then the family, because they still believe there was more evidence and the police weren't doing anything with it, they put it in a plastic baggie themselves and locked it up into storage. Would they still be able to use, if if we went down there with our resources, went down and tested that, that blood for DNA, could it be admissible uh, given the lack of an official chain of custody? Well, yeah. It, for example, if you find foreign DNA on there, it could very well be the killers. So it would be, it may not be admissible in a court of law because of the, the, the failure of preserving it in a, you know, a chain of custody. I mean, in other words, the only one that could claim that is the person whose DNA is on there. Do you understand? Yeah. So you'd have to identify the person to get it, right? For them to like claim that, well, you can't, there's no chain of custody for this. Yeah, that makes sense. But then your argument against that is that if you don't know that person, how would you have gotten their DNA to plant it on this safe? Exactly right. Right? Yeah. So if you swab it and don't destroy it, and I'd be extremely, extremely careful about how it was collected, because if there is a fingerprint there, you might want to be able to preserve that fingerprint as well. But if there is DNA there and it's... The blood could be the victims, but the fingerprint could be one, the fingerprint of the offender, and two, the DNA of the offender. So that should be collected very well. The problem is they put it in a plastic bag. I think plastic bags would eventually create, unless it was all dry and there was absolutely no moisture, would eventually create a situation where it would decay and mold. But hopefully that didn't happen. Right. Okay. Well, that's something we'll definitely keep looking into because some, you know, it very well just may be gyms and it's nothing, but there's no way of knowing that until we test it. Okay. So let me ask you this. You showed me a picture of a pillow. It looks like a couch or a chair pillow. Mm -hmm. Do they have a couch that matches that or a chair that matches that in the house? Well, they kind of have a mix match of throw pillows on their, their couches. And is that a throw pillow then? It's what, yeah. And, and so I actually, between when I sent you that picture and when we got on the phone, I called uh, Jim and Sandy's daughter and asked her about it. She said she can't be sure. She thinks that that pillow went on the love seat, the two seater couch in the living room. But, you know, they get moved around. They have dogs. She doesn't know, but she thinks that's where it came from. And part of her reasoning for thinking that too was if you look at, and I haven't sent you that yet, but I can. The crime scene photo of the living room, I hadn't noticed it before, but it looks like that love seat is um, turned a little bit. It's at an angle. It's not squared up to the room like maybe it got bumped during a struggle or something. Okay. Well, you said to me that you can't figure out what this is here for. Right. And I, I want to ask you a few questions and see if it leads you to a conclusion. Okay. So what do people use these kind of pillows for? To sit comfortably on a couch right so for comfort generally right 
But what other thing could they use it for? I mean, it's good to muffle sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People also use it for smothering somebody. Mm -hmm. So perhaps somebody brought it with them from another location to smother somebody or to muffle a sound. So if somebody was making noise, maybe they thought, we'll end it. We'll stop it here. We'll prevent that from happening. Somebody's screaming, somebody's yelling, whatever. I, I had actually presented that a similar theory about it uh, last week that it was used to muffle sound. I actually wondered if someone might, but I, where you're going with it is leading me to a better, to a place that I think makes more sense. Cause I thought, what if they were using it to, to try and muffle the, the shot of a gun, which, you know, doesn't work that well, but people still think it does and try it. But it, the, the more I thought about it, that seemed wonky for them to walk in with a, Trust me, there's a gun behind this pillow, but to hold it over somebody's face, is that kind of what you're getting at to to keep them quiet? Yeah. Yeah. Or to, you know, basically smother them. I mean, it's a way to, for example, not have to look at their face when you're smothering them if you're not used to killing somebody. And for example, if you were going to say smother Sandy to get rid of her because you've already offed her husband, but you find out that she's completely unresponsive and unconscious right now. Uh, it's not necessary. And then just set it down on your way out. Cause it, that's the, the thing that really got my attention was it doesn't look just tossed there because of the way it's up against the hardwood floor and the wall there. It looks like it was set down there. Yeah. Of course, we're assuming that this is something that the offender or offenders did, but is it possible that Sandy left it there for some reason? I don't know. She seems to be clueless about it as well, because I haven't spoken with her directly about it, but through her daughter, I've asked her, and she's like, I don't know why that pillow was there. I have no idea. Right. So here's the thing. And, you know, this is not to disparage anybody, but, you know, one of the issues that I had with my friend who is an epileptic, who has been, you know, on several different medications over the last five years, is that sometimes when I ask questions, I get this sort of amorphous kind of dodgy answer. And at first, when this was happening, I thought, you know, why are you doing that? But I later found out that he literally was kind of living in a fog, that it literally affected the way he thought. It affected his cognitive abilities. And he wasn't trying to avoid the question. He was trying to figure out how to answer the question. And sometimes he just, because he was embarrassed, he just said whatever came to his mind. And so somebody like her, whose husband was murdered and who is a prime suspect in this murder, you would expect that that person would want to try as much as possible to minimize the suspicion on them by giving direct answers. But it's sort of like when you go through trauma. We used to think that victims would just recount what happened. But then we learned that trauma can actually affect the way that you your brain memorizes and catalogs the information, the events that happened. And so you don't get a linear recitation of what went on from people who actually suffered trauma. So now we understand that that's why, you know, you sort of have to use 
cognitive interviewing techniques and active listening techniques to try to calm them down and to try to reconstruct events because they won't necessarily automatically recount it in a linear fashion like you would do if you were calm, cool, and collected. So the fact that she is giving these answers that you would think, well, how could she not know that? Or how could she keep saying, I don't remember? To me, that's a contra indicator of somebody who is has consciously killed someone and is consciously staging it to cover it up to look like somebody else did it. It's just there. Where's that planning? Why didn't that happen? Right. I always thought when I was looking at this, there's a course of theory that this she murdered her husband and staged the crime scene. But then I look at the it, as a whole. What what other forensic countermeasures does she take? And she just just shits the bed on all of it. She doesn't do anything to help herself at all. If she doesn't say there was, you know, a bushy haired stranger in the house, she doesn't say that. Oh yeah, we left the garage door open. She doesn't with everything. She's in fact, she hurts herself when they ask, you know, could you have left the garage door open? And she said, no, that's, we don't use that garage door. Right. And unfortunately, I mean, without being too crass, I mean, you said it very directly, but she also defecated on herself and urinated on herself. And the incidents of that happening as part of a staging, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of somebody going that far. There are people who have predilections to, you know, scatological behavior uh, who might not have a problem with that. But most people, most adults are incredibly repulsed by that. And not knowing how long it would be before she would, quote, get rescued if this was staged, it just seems extremely, extremely far-fetched that she would go to that extreme. Right. Even if she was capable of tying her arms up and pulling the rug or the, the, the sham and so that the chair made it look like it was literally wedged under the doorknob and blocking her exit, even if she was able to do all those things, I find it highly, extremely unprobable <laughs> that she would urinate and defecate on herself as part of the staging. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We've, we've talked a lot about the victimology and the elements that you say pretty much all the elements you're seeing evidence-wise are contraindicators of staging. So the, the, the last thing I want to get into, and, and of course, there's the physical inability to do some of these things, which can be debated, of course. I don't think that Sandy was physically capable of doing it. We've already discussed on our show the fact that Jim has 50-plus injuries, massive amounts of defensive wounds on his hands. Sandy doesn't have any injuries back on her that match any of that. And you are familiar with, and so is our audience, with the amount of injuries and the stab wounds and the dynamics of the fight. So I guess the last thing that I kind of want to get back to 
which is kind of the reason we have in there. I know you don't have all of the information to develop a big, and we've been doing a lot of this on the fly, but what is the best preliminary profile that you think you could give us on the unsubs that we're looking for? Well, in my mind, this is not a bunch of geniuses. This is done by probably more than one person. And at least one of these people is very impulsive. And that this is the kind of crime that is not very well thought out. It's not something that comes from compulsion. It's not something that comes from intellect planning and successful repetition. That this is something that got out of hand, that clearly there was an attempt to control Jim. It failed for at least a period of time. There was a lot of struggle and altercation. And whoever did this to Jim had physical evidence of that on their person. And that is not only his blood all over them, but they must have gotten injured in this process. There's no bruising that we're aware of that's consistent with her engaging in a fight, a life or death fight with Jim. There is plenty of indication that he engaged in that fight And whoever did this to him would have similar evidence on them. They had a weapon. He was probably injured right away, but he fought very hard. That's why there's so many defensive wounds. So I really cannot reconcile her being the one to do this. I think the person who did this was motivated by something other than murder. I think they were motivated by greed. And I think they made a very clumsy attempt to control Jim. And they got lucky with Sandy that she was in the midst of a seizure and easily controlled. I think they banged them both on the head at first. That's all they thought they were going to have to do, then tie him up and everything would be fine. But it didn't go that way because Jim fought back. So that's why I said it might have happened. What happened to Jim probably happened in two stages. I believe he was first injured to control him, and then he was probably bound, at least partially, and then I think he woke up and started fighting back, and that's when it went into the closet. And it may be that they hit him over the head when he was on that chair, and then tied him up and threw him in the closet, and he woke up and started kicking and fighting. That does seem to me to be consistent with what happened here. I just don't see this as something that was a last-minute murder intentional murder of Jim. I think it was an intentional home invasion burglary that went very much awry because Jim was not easily controlled. And that tells me that this was not done by experts, that they may have done this kind of thing. This may be a pattern that they do. However, they're not real geniuses at it. And I would expect that they made other mistakes along the way in other events if they did more of these kind of home invasion burglaries. I don't know. I'm just feeling like there may have been a a serious injustice here. As I work through these investigations in my own way, I'm constantly second guessing my opinions and my analysis. That's a necessary process And that's why we bring experts on the show to check not only me, but all of us. Prosecutor Colleen Barnett has interviewed on this show and several others 
offering up her expertise as to what happened to Jim Melgar. As you've heard, there is a distinct contrast between Barnett's theory of the case and Jim Clementi's analysis. The question now becomes, whose expertise do you value more? A prosecutor that has offered us up nothing more than speculation and theories about how Sandy Melgar could have committed this crime with zero evidence that she actually did commit the crime, or a man who spent five years prosecuting cases in New York City and then spent 22 years with the FBI investigating murders, followed by years and years of consulting work where he has compiled a list of thousands of murder investigations. In today's episode, Theory has finally been confronted with a factual analysis. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.